darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. In around 1906-era Vulgaris, Aleister Crowley received a flood of inspired texts that would come to be known as some of the core holy books of Thelema. Liber B. Velmagi is a short text, only a couple of pages in length, which describes one of the most exalted grades on the Tree of Life, that of the Magus. Join us as Edward Mason and I explore this brief text. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love under will. Welcome back, and uh, I guess we are winding down. We're getting close to the end of our season. I don't think I mentioned this to you yet. I meant to mention this, but uh, I think what we're going to do is going to close off season two in with uh, September, and then we'll have a little bit of a break uh, until the following January, and then uh, start posting stuff as of January again. And then after that, maybe we'll take a couple of months off a year from the actual postings. So it's a little easier to keep on top of everything. Be it so. Okay. So today we were going to discuss the uh, uh, Liber Magi. Liber 2? Liber 1. Liber 1. Liber B. Velmagi. Yeah, I guess the B was making me think of, but it yeah. can be one or I, it, two. It sounds like it should be two, but of course, the Aleph, the A, is a zero. Therefore, B becomes one, and B is the path of the Magus. So the Magus is one, sense. and his powers are... Wait, no, I've got that wrong already. <laughs> oh, I've got the text here. Uh, what is it? There's a one and a twainness to it, anyway. One is the Magus, twain his forces for his weapons. These are the seven spirits of unrighteousness, seven vultures of evil. This is very discouraging. <laughs> Thus is the art and craft of the Magus, but glamour, how shall he destroy himself? I, I love this text, and it, it took me ages to figure out what is it about it? I mean, I kept coming back to this, and I thought, well, you know, I'm... I'm not only am I not a Magus, I'm probably a few lifetimes away from becoming one, and it's not necessarily relevant to where I am. But of course, I think all of the holy books are at certain times relevant to us. There's a particular message in there, even if it's not to do with the main theme of the text. Crowley himself says this thing came through I forget the date, but I mean, all the, the principal holy books came at a period of months round about late 1906, 1907, um, where he was, I don't want to say the word cementing, but maturing his adeptship as someone who had knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure that anybody could actually get through past the adept grades of the system. It was sort of understood that a master of the temple was really some kind of discarnate being floating down and you know, communicating in sonorous tones to some human 
contact who would duly report the sonorous toning and um, impress a lot of people. So certainly he had no idea at this point that it was possible for a human being to become a magus. What he did finally realize was that it's entirely possible for this these grades to be attained, but as he says of Master of the Temple, you get kind of kicked back down into one of the sephiroth of the, the lower part of the tree. Um, I once had a discussion with somebody that I know, or I'm, let's say I'm quite convinced, is a Master of the Temple. And I said, you know, you, I've read that there's this, the night of Pan, it's all darkness. Um, Marga seems to be about light and fire. What happens then? You know, does it, does this night of Pan, this supernal darkness continue? Because there is this reference in Libra 65 that there is a light so strenuous it is not perceived as light. There are all these baffling references to something that seems to be way beyond what I need to concern myself with, but it kind of helps, you know, when you're struggling to get through the work, knowing where the mountains are is a great point of, you know, orientation. Mm -hmm. What I was told was, well, don't forget when you're dealing with master of the temple, what's opening up is the neshama, the receptive intuitive consciousness, which you can be in that level for days, weeks, maybe months. But then at a certain point, it's kind of operating on its own. And you see this in Libra 65, where the scribe, which is Alistair Crowley, is protesting, you know, I've borne the inkhorn and the pen. <laughs> what about me? Hmm. And he only comes into the picture really in the last chapter of that. Meantime, there's Adonai, who I have been given to understand is not Ketha, but operating from Hokmar, talking to the Magister, which is illuminated Crowley, VVVVV. Nefrata V V V V V. And it's all happening on a level beyond the conscious life of Crowley. You can you can kind of sort of put it down in poetic metaphors. You might even be able to do a painting, and I suppose some people might have put it into music. But when you start using words to describe things, it's it's like picking up a crumb from the plate. And trying to derive, you know, a whole wheat bread from it. It's just, hmm. yeah, you, you, it, it shows you what it might be like, but you can't get a loaf from the one crumb. So there is this factor here where you're dealing with all these contrarian, swirling ideas. And then this Liber B. Velmagi, which is, you know, as I keep saying, way beyond my own pay grade in all of this, <laughs> where there's this cheerful warning that um, you've got to be careful because from all these actions must he, the Magus, cease before the curse of his grade is uplifted from him, before he attained to that which existeth without form. And further down, and woe be unto him that refuseth the curse of the grade of a Magus and the burden of the attainment thereof, which makes you think, well, why bother? <laughs> yeah. Being an adept surely ought to be enough, and you can just hang around there for a few uh, lifetimes, and there's no problem. What is fascinating is the whole job of the Magus delivering the word of the Logos. And it's that 
that's not even a good way of putting it because an adept, a senior adept, is somebody who's explaining and advocating and talking about the Logos. If somebody has actually become a master of the temple and they've hit you know, universal consciousness, cosmic consciousness, they've got the big wow, to go on to Magus, the next stage, is to find that, as Crowley says, you are suddenly confined within a particular job. You're no longer explaining the word of the aeon, which in our case, the word of the law is Thelema. You are being this word. Um, you have to actually focus entirely. In one star in sight, Crowley says, a magist must renounce his enjoyment of the infinite, which is what's happening when you've got when you stabilize as a master of the temple, so that he may formulate himself as the finite, and he must practice the, the acquisition of the practical secrets alike of initiating and governing his proposed new universe and the identification of himself with the impersonal idea of love. The impersonal idea of love. It's all getting, the more we get into the words, the harder it is to figure out exactly what is being said but you're actually embodying this. You can no longer be an advocate for, you can no longer be the lawyer for the accused. You are both accused and lawyer, and I suppose in some senses you're the jury and judge. All of that cosmic stuff is now being focused through one particular lens, which is the word of the Magus. And the problem with this is that it all gets confused. Um, once you start preaching your word, there is a problem. I, I tried to sum this up in a few paragraphs and couldn't seem to get anywhere and was rather disappointed to find that IAO131 had put it far more concisely than I could. So I'm going to quote um, one of his things from um, his commentaries. His word, that is the magus, his word is, of truth is uttered but its effect is to send forth illusion and falsehood. In one sense, if the word is understood to be the act of creation itself, then the word begets the multiplicity of the universe and therefore the illusion, so-called, of separateness that is Maya, the falsehood of duality. Oh, there's my state here and there's something I have to attain. Oh, there's right and there's wrong, there's black and there's white, there's karma and effects, there's yin and there's yang. Um, in another sense, he says, on a lower plane, so to speak, the word of any particular magus is bound to be misinterpreted by the children of earth who receive the word. And it will become confused and even used to enslave others. A look at most of the last few millennia's history will show how this happens repeatedly. Yes, we all have encountered religions that take the word and use it to subdue the masses, build a cult, or get power, or whatever. As I say, like, you look at it and think, is it really worth doing? But on the other hand, this is the path for ultimate illumination. Because at the end of Lieber B, you know, he talks about that the mystery of sorrow is that of a, a magister which of course becomes not the, the, the vision of sorrow, but as a matured vision, the, the vision of wonder, the trance of wonder. It's like, wow, 
Isn't it amazing that everything in the universe actually interacts and it's all a continuum? Whereas conventionally, you just you know have incidents that happen and individual thoughts and individual people and the continuum is hard to grasp. The grade of Amagus deals with the mystery of change. Nothing is permanent. It keeps on switching about and the Amagus has to embrace that and to understand changes stability. And of course, the grade of Ipsissimus is the mystery of selflessness, which is also called the mystery of Pan, Pan being the all, the everything, the totality. Okay, says Crowley, eventually it shall be easy for the Magus to combine this trinity from its elements and further to combine Sat, Chit, and Ananda, light, love, life, three by three into nine that are one. In which meditation success shall be that which was first adumbrated to him in the grade of practicus. And this is the, I'm, I'm cutting out a few words here because the sentences are rather complex. This is the opening of the grade of Ipsissimus, and by the Buddhists, it is called the trance Niroda Samapati. So if you can really make it through Magus, then finally there is the possibility to go against the manifestation of the universe entirely and get back to this crown situation, and we can assume finally to attain actual enlightenment. So there is a point to getting through all of this, <laughs> but it's going to be a rough ride because you have to do this enchanting of the world. You have to use what um, the Buddhists, I think, call upaya, the skillful means. You have to get people doing things that take them to a particular state where they end up realizing possibly the opposite of what they thought they were going to find. Not that, oh, I am a splendid being of light, but oh, there is light which happens to manifest in one particular point in space and time as this so-called me thing. Mm -hmm. That's the curse of the Magus. He's got to get this across. And of course, there will be a very small minority of beings or manifestations in space and time who actually get through and move on themselves. That is the work of the Magus. Hopefully, this aeon ends up being more productive than the last one, and we actually come to an entirely different state of consciousness, which we understand is the intention of the aeon of Thelema, the aeon of Horus. It does seem like uh, there's... Uh, I mean, it's essentially like the magician must tell what essentially becomes a lie. He tells the truth, which manifests as a lie, which echoes uh, the truth. And uh, essentially, we end up with, you know, this whole uh, this whole idea of many gates to one palace, where it's like um, any 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 one path if you wanted to say one religion or one philosophy or whatnot, is only going to be partial. It's not going to include everything. And that's that's the... Uh, that, to me, seems like where the lie part comes in. You know, it's like you're... It's still necessary and useful, but it's not actually the truth in its totality. And it can't be. The paradox is that unless you stick with your path and do it to the utmost of your ability, it ain't going to work for you. All the time as we go on, 
maybe we don't necessarily destroy the perspective we had before, but we go on to the next step past it, but only by realizing that particular grade, that particular degree or level or state in its fullness, can you really grasp what's going on? One of the things here where we're talking about the Magister Templi, the Master of the Temple, or the Magus, let's say you get through the initial phase, um, put it in AA terms, you are first a probationer, then you're a neophyte, where you're based in Malkuth, but looking towards Yesod, the, the ninth Sephira, the foundation. And from there, all the way up through the realization of Tefereth, the work of Gevura, and the work of Chesed, you're in what Kabbalists call the Ruach, which is variously defined as the ego. I think that's a bad term to use in this context. It is the structuring part of ourselves. We're getting this comprehension. We're getting all of this knowledge. We're developing an enhanced view of what life itself is about. And it all begins to fit into some kind of structured philosophy. You can, in fact, the, the Adeptus Exemptus is told to write out a whole paper on what his or her philosophy of existence is. You describe the universe in 156 pages or something. So, you know, that done. Okay, now you've done that. The next step is the abyss where all of these structured ideas, all of these clear notions, all of these principles and values and everything else, you kind of junk it all because you're having to step away from it. The work of the uh, Adept Exemptance, I think, is about realizing that everything so far has been a specific realization and it's about developing the ability to step back from the, that set of realizations that have made up this life philosophy, this life practice you've been through, and say, okay, I can now let it all fall apart. They talk about crossing the abyss. I don't know, not having actually been there, although I've had a few sort of, you know, kind of intuitions about what it might be like. Um, there is no path. It's a trackless waste. There is no path through the abyss. I mean, yes, there are paths on the tree that link up to the supernal sephiroth, but you can't really do more than kind of get a faint signal through those until all that stuff you built up before is abandoned. And you end up, as to use Crowley's metaphor, as a little pile of ash in the city of the pyramids in the Sephira Bina understanding, which at first is like, oh, goodness, <laughs> no wonder the universe is in a bit of a mess, or my, you know, well, as much we might have experienced it. Certainly here on Earth, it can seem to be a bit of a mess because there's all of this philosophy that everyone's come up with, and. Um, None of it's entirely true. But behind that, there is this intuitive understanding of things, which you can't put into any sensible words. But as somebody matures into that grade, there is, I think, a profound peace that seems to come 
and a confidence that somehow everything is is going to work out okay. When that is stabilized, then the next step, which I don't think you could consciously decide on, it would be kind of like, <clears throat> it's time, you know, that, that knock on the back of the head, and the aspirant moves on to be 9-2, becomes a magus. And at that point, there is all of this stuff going on on a level where it's difficult to speak coherently because it is dealing, first of all, with the neshama, but it's the neshama is receiving the chia, the life force, the absolute, you know, infinite outpouring of light and energy that we call supernal fire that comes through hokma. This whole process of uh, evolution, so to speak, or involution, if you if you prefer, um, yeah. it brings to mind that uh, the the scrying of the other. I think it was fifteen where. Crowley encountered, I think there was like the center of the holy table, the 08 part, the 12-fold table, I think it was, uh, became like an altar or a, a space where there was a bunch of people facing an altar, and there right. was Pan was hovering over the altar, the mystery of Pan, and the, the first row worshipped him as a man, the second row worshipped him as a goat, the third row worshipped him as, a, I don't know if it was the third one that worshipped him as a hawk, and so on. Um, so it's sort of, that that comes to mind with the way that you're describing this sort of process of uh, yeah. gradual unveiling. And the Magus, who is really the ultimate teacher of any particular aeon, um, has to accept that you have to say certain things to certain people at certain times. Mm -hmm. And you can have much more of a discussion with somebody who's got 10 or 15 years of ritual and meditative work under their belt than you can with someone who's just coming into it all. That That's clear common sense, but it means when you're dealing with concepts as subtle and contradictory as you find working the tree of life, that you have to choose words carefully because what you're trying to do is help somebody come through a particular phase rather than necessarily telling them the absolute truth to begin with because they can't do anything with it. It's just some kind of abstract principle. Hmm. Well, everything is a oneness that arises from nothing. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> what, what in my life? I mean, I can remember the idea. Thou canst but, uh, draw on the uh, dolphin with the sound of the pan pipes. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> so you have to work through the stages, and that's the work of the Magus. And Crowley says that you have to learn not only to produce initiation, but to help people work through that, uh, all of that, so that they can eventually begin to, you know, what is it? Yeah. Uh, one star in sight. Again, the, the acquisition of the practical secrets alike of initiating and governing his proposed new universe and the identification of himself for the impersonal idea of love. Somebody I know told me, well, I read Crowley's Confessions and he just seems really high on himself. The problem is if you start being modest as a magus, you're denying your own logos. I mean, you are identified with that. You are the logos. Mm -hmm. So you can't be, well, you know, gosh, I'm just a, a modest teacher here. No, the, the Marcus has to say, I proclaim 
this word and I own the job, the task, the privilege, the curse, the burden of doing this thing. Now, there's also the other issue here that Crowley is the Magus of this aeon, but there are other people who have gone as far. And it is understood that during a particular aeon, any Magus can declare his or her word. It's going to be, though, in some way augmenting the primary one, Thelema. I think an analogy here might be saying, okay, Thelema is the word, but you could also sum that up with the saying, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So one Magus might declare their word as do. I'm going to teach you about action, how you can motivate, how you can get results, how you can learn techniques. Do what? Okay, what means identifying what the will is. What is your will? Well, let, let, let's, let's look at ways of examining it philosophically and emotionally and psychologically. The third Magus might say, well, I'll take the word thou. My word is thou. What are, you know, who is this thou? Well, who is this person here? Ramana Maharshi, to give a, a Hindu example. It's all about finding that there is no person there. There's just the universal manifesting as an apparent person. And wilt, the final word, okay, well, not the final word, but the, the fourth word, obviously looking at what will is because it's based around desire and things like that. All, I mean, obviously, it would be much more complex than that if you've declared a word for your particular little corner of the aeon and your own sub-universe. Because this is a universe. We're talking about a perspective that means you're having a completely different universe to somebody else. Um, I have an example with that. I have a friend who is quite caught in a lot of conspiracy theory and is really, really upset by the amount of control. He feels, you know, all the usual culprits, Bill Gates, big pharma, big money, you know, the Illuminati, which of course is us, but we, I don't tell him that, <laughs> um, you know, have over his life. And I think, you know, that's his universe. And getting him to realize it, it doesn't matter. Once you have found the actual living spark or you know, the zone you work in, if that's a better metaphor, that's the thing you identify with and let you know the folk folly do its own thing because to him this is all terrifying stuff. And I think, well, I don't care what big pharma thinks of me. <laughs> I'm careful what medicines I put in my body, and but I take medicine when I need it and abstain from it when I don't think I, it's necessary. And so on. But that's his universe. He really, really is dug into this. We've been having quite a dialogue where he's finding out I have a totally different view of things. And the stuff that frightens him, I just think is kind of irrelevant. Hmm. Another thing I wanted to do based on the book, um, the text, a lot of stuff crops up in, in capital letters. For example, this is verse 11 of Lieber B. His weapons fulfill the wheel, and on what axle that turneth is not known unto him. Now, what and axle are capitalized, W and A. So I thought, why? And I you know, did my in-depth research in uh, 
the Akashic Records, but came back to the 777 because that's much easier to use. Um, that would be done in Hebrews, Aleph and Vav, which of course is one plus six. And one of the words in Sefer Sefiroth is Aleph Vav, which means desire, which is the root of will. What is the root of will but desire? And the, the being or the apparent being is going through all of this devolution and then going back again because it desires to have an experience of a universe. So what axle that turneth on is known unto him? It's desire. It's, it's the, what it's turning on is the will, the, the core desire to have an existence. I thought that was kind of cool, and I've tried to find others. That's um, fun, uh, just the the fact that it's also specifically desire uh, with the uh, enumerating to the number seven, so it's netzach. It's a specific kind of desire. It's not just your futile exactly. carnal desire or, yeah, you no, know. It, it's like I really want to know the truth and how I can be cosmic in, you know, 22 easy lessons. <laughs> Another one I think I came up with, I'm not entirely sure on this one, um, verse 14, let him then utter that falsehood. Isn't it? We're talking about the, the Margus word again. Let him then utter that without fear that the law may be fulfilled. And according to his original nature, capital H, capital O, capital N. All right, I thought, what do we do there? And I tried um, hey, ayin, and noon, which didn't seem to get me very much. And then I went to Nun Vav, hey, Hebrew again, going right to left. Okay, that's 50 plus 6 plus 5, which gave me 61, which Crowley in, in Sefer Sefiroth, this the Latin word habitaculum. And I thought, I, I hate it when he uses Latin words. I mean, I've got <laughs> to go and find another dictionary to see what he means. It's a dwelling. It's where you're home. And according to his original nature, which is my home, I have no home other than the fact that there is this disturbance, this cheater, you know, this ritty in the chitter that produces the manifestation of this guy who is going through space and time, getting physically older all the time, and is currently talking to you for a podcast. But that original nature is it's coming from my home. And of course, when you are fully identified with that home, then everything is lined up on the middle pillar and pals app, you know, cosmic consciousness is yours. Not to mention the Ayin, which is 61. So Which is 61, which is nothing. Yeah. So not. my original nature is nothing. The mystery of Pan. It's my home, which is nothing. <laughs> Sorry, the mystery of which one? The mystery of Pan again. Exactly. Yeah. There ain't nothing there. <laughs> I'm sure there's other stuff here. I only started doing this the last 24 hours, and I didn't give myself enough time to find more little clues in this. But there's a lot of capitalized stuff in this short text. It's 21 verses, two and a half pages in my copy of the, the holy books. So there's probably a whole load of other coded info. It's amazing that it came through to Crowley well before he had even crossed the abyss and become a master of the temple. So it was really, you know, you're going to need this if you're going to complete your career. It comes through in this exalted state to his 
ruach that is trying to make sense of it all through neshama. Because this is spoken by Amagus to by Amagus in this writing made known through the mind of a magister. Now, obviously, there isn't an actual specific magus in this play, case, unless we take that to be Iwas, his holy guardian angel, also referred to at times as Adonai. So his HGA is communicating this writing through the mind of a magister. Crowley still hasn't got to the mind of a magister, even though he's done a pretty deep job of knowledge and conversation. I think you have to appreciate that not only did he have K and C, but if you look at his descriptions of K and C in Lieber 65, the book of the heart girt with a serpent, he really did it to the depths of depth. He took it as far as you could take K and C. A lot of people would think that if they'd done that, they had attained enlightenment. To him, it was just a, a midpoint in the path. Hmm. Yeah, I think in, in uh, Lieber 65, there's some... Uh, mention in the commentary regarding the idea that the angel is himself uh, trying to seek its, his own unity and in Kether and also comes down through the path of Gimel, straight down the tree, but also through the path of the Magus into Bina. Yes. And there's that whole uh, idea of speaking the word, but it's understood, and I forget the exact wording of it, but essentially it's it's understood, and there was darkness of understanding. Oh yeah, so the here it is. So the so too does the angel aspire to the unity uttermost showed, for his position is the path of Gimel. In his attainment, he has therefore reached Kether, from which spring not only his own path of Gimel leading to Tifereth, but that of Beth leading to Bina. To understand yes. properly the full nature of Bina, we must remember this point. The sorrow connected with the idea of the Sephira is due to the fact that she is the recipient of the original illusion. There is no sorrow in the other current, the path of Daleth, through which her lord communicates his essence. Right, because Daleth is the path of Venus, the Empress card, and it's you know, all orgasmic glory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I guess that other part about the darkness thing is somewhere else. So, <laughs> But that gets the idea across anyway. I, I think that's a fascinating piece of information that the angel is in the path of Gimel, mm -hmm. which is the longest path on the tree, starting in Kether, descending past Hogmar and Bina and the connecting path of Daleth, past Chesed and Gevura with the connecting path of Lust, the path of Teth, and finally coming down to Tefereth. So it unites so much information. But of course, it can't go any further until we've done all that work of the Ruach below Tefereth. That's below is not the best word on the tree because it implies too, too much of a structure of levels, let's say. But you need to do all of that work first in order to be able to access what's coming into to Ferreth. Like I said earlier on, um, I mean, you look at this and think this is a little bit past my current understanding, but it's important to you know, orient by seeing the heights in the distance, because there are times when you just feel, why did I get involved with this stuff in the first place? You know, it's, 
more work than I ever imagined. You know, you start out thinking I'll take 10 years to get enlightened and, you know, 25 years later, it's like, well, I think I've sort of begun. <laughs> but there, whichever part of the tree of life you're working from or working on or working with, the whole tree is always present there. I think that's one reason why people say there's a tree in every sephira, mm -hmm. in each of the four worlds. The bizarreness of the magus, the responsibility of the magus, and also the joy of the magus. There has to be a joy there because that's, that's what it is. It's the universe enjoying itself. Oh, look, I've manifested. <laughs> I'm so damn cool. Mm -hmm. And also there is this thing of the impersonal love that has to be shown. The Magus ultimately is doing this because he, she, or they is identified with the word, which is one form of, of love coming from the unimaginable and indescribable source of things. Um, therefore, it's kind of wherever you're at in terms of organizational grades and degrees and official titles and stuff, there's always to some extent in some manner an inner magus talking to you. You know, there is that voice that comes, maybe not as words. Some people are more visually oriented. I often find there's just an idea that's suddenly there. I didn't think it. It's not the consequence of what I've been thinking about for the past half hour. It's just suddenly, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that kind of fits. That's the magus within in its very embryonic form, trying to communicate comprehensively or comprehensibly with me. Um, but, of course, I'm just not able to sustain that level of vibrational energy my nervous system just isn't up to it so often the flashes we get are just flashes they're just there for a moment and like oh i think i saw the answer to everything but then it's gone and there's this memory of certain images and certain phrases or concepts there but you're not back in it at the same time you can't remain in that that's okay but it is the magus within talking to us through our understanding and passing down to a point where we can kind of sort of have some image or concept or feeling about what meaning is for us in this existence. No, that's kind of uh, worthwhile stuff to keep in mind because the idea that the entire tree is present all the time and that sort of thing and you you know you'll get insights into different areas and that sort of thing i find like uh you know well having been um having some discussions on the podcast regarding fraud or Ahad and uh the idea of like the black brotherhood and and the abyss and that sort of thing I mean, especially because I've been recently reading through Germer's letters as published by David Shoemaker at Alia and, um, mm -hmm. or Ali, there's this whole concept of the hierarchical structure of the tree and the paths of our ascent up the tree and the idea of, um, you know, you can get kind of hung up on that. You can kind of get up, hung up on the idea of like, I'm at this stage of the game. 
or maybe I'm pushing ahead to this other stage of the game and I'm, you know, experiencing this this illustrious grade or something like that. And it seems like a bit of a distraction because, yeah, you can be experiencing insights into other areas of things and you don't need to get hung up on that or, you know, take it too far off the rails. No, you, that's why you need a diary, like jot stuff down. Um I had a particular insight a couple of nights ago. I don't want to get into specifics, but it was a very clear image that came through. And I thought, oh, oh, that summarizes a heck of a lot that's you know, pertinent to me individually. Mm. It, it, it would mean nothing to anybody else. Is it directly pertinent to my official grade degree, all of that stuff? Well, it, it impacts it. I mean, the whole, the structuring, the, the, the tree gives us a map. You've got to have some kind of map because you're going into this mystery. You're going into the darkness. It's occultism. You don't know what's up ahead because you can't encompass that much life stuff, that much energy, and ultimately that much love. It's just beyond what we can consciously accept i imagine bodhisattvas and saints are always under a tremendous amount of stress because they're trying to manifest something that they know most people can't deal with very well and perhaps they themselves have had to struggle with it for decades i, I know I've, I've gotten stuck on the fact that i wasn't super specifically oriented around Horus. And here I am, a you know, Thelemic whatnot, and I'm supposed to be teaching people. And I just don't have a strong emotional connection to that archetype. And I felt this was, you know, an immense failing. Um, it's taken me Lord knows how long to break through to the idea of, okay, Horus is a defining characteristic of the working environment. It's like the difference between working in the fields or working in an office building with a lot of pods, or you are working, say, as a cleaner in a church or a priest <laughs> with a very different environment. But it's the environment. You don't necessarily experience your own relationship to this as Horus coming through. Even if it is, it's going to be the overall defining feature but the actual identity form of what comes through could be something very, very different. And the tree and all of the Thelemic stuff, all of the things that Crowley wrote, they give you a, a toolbox. You know, you've got some sort of phrase. Like I said, the, the reason I picked on this particular leaper was like, why am I so hung up on something that's way beyond my own possible accomplishments in this particular lifetime what's left of me what's left of what what's left of it and <laughs> what's left of me as well um because it's speaking to confusion i haven't got a perfectly laid out philosophy here you know i, I don't have the theory down pat ideas come to me in particular moments and i can use a whole load of stuff i've learned but there are times when I need to refer back to that guiding light way up ahead. That is the Logos that, however distantly, is coming to me. 
is the thing that guides. A lot of it will actually pass in real terms down that path of Gimel. On the diagram of the tree, there's no direct connection between Hokmah and the path of Gimel. But you're talking about the supernals here where everything interconnects and interrelates and it's only metaphorically true. On the lower parts of the tree, it's much more helpful to stay with the exact ground plan as laid out, you know, start with the path of Tav, then there's Sheen and Kof down the bottom and so on and so forth. At times you just need to know that everything is tied in. It does all lead us somewhere. And it's a tree of life, not a tree of abstract reasoning. It's what you're going to experience. I mean, you can do a whole talk, and I thought perhaps we should do one for uh, Darkly Splendid Abodes on relating the stages of life to the tree. That can be done very easily. For somebody who's not really working, uh, you know, esoteric exercises. Hmm. So knowing the goal, or at least you know, close to the ultimate goal, through a, a text like Liebe Bivel Magi gives us some kind of navigational aid in in the darkness in the confusion I, I you know i'm often amazed and I, i'm right now i'm rereading tobias churton's biography of crowley the, i'm not sure about his overall take but frequently he points out just how lost the man felt it wasn't you know i know exactly where i'm going um he was frequently confused he felt things were meaningless um, you see texts like the Heart of the Master, which starts out, you know, where I, I don't know, I'm part of some cause, but I don't know what the cause is. And, you know, who is our captain? I couldn't tell you. Um, and it gradually works back to where he finds his, his footing again. But so often he just ended up at a point where nothing was clear. I think that is much of his message to us. Just as this particular Lieber has a message of you're dealing with craft and falsehood, the art and craft, thus is the art and craft of the Magus, but glamour. You're just, you're bewitching people. Hmm. But you know that it takes us from where we are and helps us move forward. So I think summing up, that is the, the point of the book, the use of the book, and to me, the the private joy of the book that it does that is like this is where you'll go it's going to be difficult if you ever get there but since you're not there you don't have to worry about the difficulty you must just remember that as, as when you do finally make it there in some unimaginable future time um this is the opening of the grade of ipsissimus and by the buddhists it is called the trance of niroda samapati and so at this point you would assume that all of the real tensions and divisions and confusions of life can be let go because there is beingness coming out of nothingness. And that might be all we need to know in the end. Maybe you can indulge me, and I'll. Uh, I, I kind of feel like this is a pertinent chapter from the Book of Lies uh, okay. to to this subject matter. And if you don't mind me just reading through it, and I can always cut yeah, it out. If... 
<laughs> if it ends up being, if I can't think of an answer if it's fast. too in, <laughs> overindulgent but uh, <laughs> so it's onion peelings chapter 14 the universe oh, is the practical joke of the general at the expense of the particular quoth frater perdurabo and laughed but those disciples nearest to him wept seeing the universal sorrow those next to them laughed seeing the universal joke Below these, certain disciples wept, then certain laughed, others next wept, others next laughed, next others wept, next others laughed. Last came those that wept because they could not see the joke, and those that laughed, lest they should be thought not to see the joke, and thought it safe to act like Frater Perrabo. <laughs> That's a marvelous <laughs> passage. Yeah. <laughs> But though Frater Perdurabo laughed openly, he also at the same time wept secretly, and in himself he neither laughed nor wept, nor did he mean what he said. And that seems like a pretty on the nose for a lot of uh, what Lieber B is talking about, really. Very much, yes. It's the same kind of concept, the same territory here. What, what what's going on and there are times when you do laugh and cry and cry some more crowley himself you know dealt with a lot of pain and grief in his life Absolutely. Um, you know deaths of children loss of friendships persecution by people who had more money to pay better lawyers than he could ever afford um yet he kept going because what he was actually based on had absolutely nothing to do with the people who couldn't understand him. Tenderness and kindness aren't the words that are usually associated with Crowley. But I think it was Gerald Sutin who asked Israel Rigardi, was Crowley kind? And Rigardi immediately, immediately replied, yes, he could be. Hmm. There was something there in him that was not the cold cynical immature manipulator that we usually see him as being he had to manipulate he was a magus that was his job <laughs> you know he had to play games with people's heads and sometimes he felt motivated to be outwardly mean but it was all leading in a particular direction it was going somewhere finding that behind any sense of specific meanings in the world or to be found in the world or any other world there is also an ongoing pulse and vibration embrace that's up there ahead of us that eventually is, becomes progressively more real and except in the very dark moments we have a sense that it's there for us we are part of it and ultimately i think we come to the point where we realize we are that and virtually nothing else well on that note thank you very much for your time and uh, uh, joining me today and this is a, as usual a absolute pleasure to have a conversation about this subject matter well thank you for inviting me once more Right. We'll do more next season. Sounds okay. good. We'll see you next season. Across the abyss of time between season two and season three. Excellent. <laughs> 93. 93. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. 
and join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.